Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. I'd like to first invite everyone here to the event and everyone in the audience and also to our audience online. Um, our event tonight is Homelessness in London in a Time of Crisis. And the topic holds really a great deal of significance in terms of both its human costs and in terms of the complexities of finance and policy in order to try to get around and solve this problem at least to some extent. To give a little bit of context about why London and what we're talking about this evening, the problem of homelessness in London is particularly acute. We have a very high proportion of people in temporary accommodation. And we also have a high um, level uh, number of rough sleepers. And this is coupled with, as many of you will know, especially those of you who are um, students who've just come to the LSE, we have a particularly acute housing crisis. It's hard to find accommodation. And with this, it's actually hard to find acceptable accommodation for, um, short for people um, who need temporary accommodation, and London's local authorities bear the brunt of this increased cost quite frequently. Um, as an audience, we're really very fortunate this evening to have a great group of speakers who are here from policy and practice, from academia, and from um, the third sector. Uh, to start off with, we have Christine Whitehead, who's an emeritus professor of housing and economics at the LSC. She's also Deputy Director of LSE London, um, and she's worked at the interface between academia and research and policy for all of her career. Um, she's been a special advisor for a number of governments and currently is a special advisor to the House of Commons Select Committee on leveling up housing and communities. Um, we also have Jennifer Winter, um, who's the assist Assistant Director of and I have to read this out because your title is so long, which indicates how much work local authorities actually have to do. She is Assistant Director of Benefits and Housing Needs at the London Borough of Hackney, responsible for homelessness prevention, procurement, management, and maintenance of temporary accommodation, rough sleeping, and associated commissioning for supported accommodation, provision for those with complex needs, and the administration of housing benefit and income maximization, is that all of it? Yes, okay. for now. Sure. <laughs> um, we also have Pam Orchard, who's worked in homelessness um, the sector since 2003. She has been the chief executive for the connection at St. Martin's um, since 2017, and she has been leading really ambitious strategies to introduce a new approach for the charity services. And finally, we have Maria Christina um, Vogel, who is a PhD in sociology from within the LSE, and she's currently a research officer here and a guest teacher in the Department of Sociology. Her work really focuses around homelessness, inequality, and care ethics and care work. Um, I am now charged with passing over the baton to our moderator this evening, Manny Haughty, who is the chief executive of Trust for London, um, and I will pass over to you. Great, thanks. Thanks, Nancy. Uh, yeah, just to introduce myself, so uh, I'm Manny, I'm the Chief Executive of an organisation called Trust for London. 
Trust for London is an independent charitable foundation. We are lucky enough to have a, an endowment of around £300 million, and every year we give away the proceeds of some of that endowment to organisations that are tackling poverty and inequality in London. It won't surprise you that for London, the defining feature of poverty is housing costs. So when housing costs are taken into account, the proportion of people in poverty roughly doubles. You know, it's an extra million people in poverty because of the cost of housing. And we are in a housing crisis, and I'm sure many of you are feeling that from where you're at, trying to find affordable places to live uh, in the city. But of course, we're all here because we know when there's a crisis, the people that have the least that are impacted the most. Uh, and people in poverty will struggle with house prices right now. But today, we're talking about people who are in extreme poverty, people who are in destitution, at which get who which get the uh, the worst end of the of the deal. We do lots of work supporting organisations around housing, and I'm very proud that we work with a, another foundation called the Oak Foundation, and are giving out around a million pounds to organisations that are helping residents in households in temporary accommodation. Uh, as we all know, that they don't often temporary is the misnomer in that sentence. Uh, we're supporting organisations on the ground like uh, London Gypsies and Travellers, who are supporting uh, Gypsy, Roman and Traveller communities uh, in temporary accommodation. The Magpie Project, which is in Newham and surrounding boroughs in East London, which supports mums and children uh, who are living in temporary accommodation. And Just Life, who are working with local authorities like Hackney uh, to bring together sort of uh, temporary accommodation action groups to try and influence the way uh, policy is done. And we're trying to bring all of the organisations we fund together to be a, a sum of their parts try and influence the debate around housing and the housing crisis, and particularly those in temporary accommodation. So really looking forward to today's discussion, really great speakers. I'm just going to warn the speakers, you've got 10 minutes <laughs> each. I'm going to, I might be kind and give you a couple of extra minutes if you're being interesting. Um, uh, if you're not, then you will get uh, the 10-minute warning. I'm, I don't know how I'm going to do it. You'll be over there, I'll be over here. You'll find some kind of noise coming from this direction. So I'm going to hand over to Christine. We're going to do 10 minutes each, and then we'll come out for questions to the crowd and also to those online. Hi. Um, I, I, I mean, I've been working on, on this sort of area uh, for an awful long time. And unhappily, it's getting worse rather than better at the present time. Um, but I wanted to tell you, talk to some of you who are obviously not necessarily A Londoners and B totally immersed in this type of housing, um, a little bit of history about how um, the homelessness situation has developed, or the support for homeless has developed over the last 40, 50, 60 years. Um, in 1966, which I hate to say I can remember, um, there was a film called Cathy Come Home. It, was, it won a large number of prizes for the quality of the, of the product, but it also really got people understanding that there was a homeless problem. Most people thought of it at that time as being really only ex-army people wandering around the streets and being coming, coming to my mother once every three months for a bit of money and a cup of tea. Um, but it wasn't like that. It was, homelessness was also major uh, in the cities. And Cathy Come Home showed a particular instance and it got nearly everybody involved. <coughs> And both Shelter and Crisis, which are the two major homelessness uh, organisations, 
Uh, although they had begun before that, in other words, they were part of the same movement and realizing that it was important, uh, they were able to really got, get started and start to work very effectively on the subject in 1966. But it took till 1977 uh, before we passed any legislation which did two things. It protected people. It set out how local authorities had to make accommodation available for certain categories of homeless people, most of which were, of course, families. It was very, very much an emphasis on the family uh, and the children involved in it, but also vulnerable adults. And it was, to my knowledge, and I think most other people's knowledge, the first major piece of legislation across the world which identified that you couldn't just feed people or try to do something on, uh, you had to do, you actually had to provide proper accommodation for people at the levels of occupancy which were standard. And that act stayed in place, well it's still in place of course, um, but it was the core of local authority responsibility uh, and local authorities started to have a really significant role to play in that. Now one of the problems about it was that it was fundamentally you've got to get yourself into a really dreadful position before you get any help whatsoever. Uh, and then um, in the late part of the decade, last decade, um, we started to look at the possibility rather of solving the problem once it's absolutely there, but trying to do something a bit earlier. So people could come forward to local authorities for assistance 56 days before they were being kicked out of their accommodation. And, that, and in that way, we've got a very large part of the work is in prevention rather than in actual accommodation. It's the most fundamental change since uh, in the last 40 years. Uh, it included two new duties. One was to prevent the homelessness um, within 56 days means, for instance, local authorities could go to the landlord and say, you know, what, what, what do you need to keep them? And there's a lot of that. Um, and take reasonable steps to, re <coughs> to relieve homelessness for all eligible clients. And that meant a lot more for single people, because before that, really, it was very much more difficult for single people to get assistance. So, so that's sort of quick history. Um, quick thing about numbers in London, because they are quite important. Um, homelessness in England went over 100,000 uh, this year. Uh, and after a, a decline during, during COVID. Um, the proportion of that in total accommodation in London was around two-thirds, 65, 66% in London in uh, 2019, just before COVID. 
but now it's about 57%. But the population of London and the number of households in London is around 17%. So what we're seeing is a situation where people are just staying longer uh, than they do anywhere else in the country. Anywhere else in the country there are more options to assist people. Um, it's also the case that households that are coming forward, and, in, and particularly single people who are coming forward, need more support than they have done in the past, or at least they get more support, but it's still nothing like enough. London has many more people in temporary, families in temporary accommodation proportionately than elsewhere in the country, again reflecting the underlying housing problems. Um, and London houses more people in temporary accommodation provided by the private rented sector rather than by directly by the local authority, um, as well as more people outside boroughs. So you, you may be homeless, and I'll use Islington because it's my local borough, but you might increasingly find yourself somewhere else, usually with agreement, but sometimes not. Islington actually doesn't do very much out of, out of borough, but it is beginning to be important. And one of the <coughs> boroughs said to me uh, last week, you know, we've taken all the accommodation in Peterborough we can find. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so people are being forced to change their whole lives uh, and end up in somewhere entirely different. And of course, the home, London's homelessness stay they're much longer than anywhere else in the country. And especially larger households, and of course, especially those who need have accessibility problems. But larger, if you've got a larger household, you are going to be stuck in TA for eight, 10 years, maybe longer, in some context. I've put some numbers in there. You'll be able to see them always. They say basically that. But London has a hell of a lot larger proportion in TA simply because they stay longer rather than particularly because there are other differences. So given that it's local authorities have got the requirement to, to look after people, what are they finding? Um, homelessness acceptances, that is ones that local authorities deem to be homeless, are not much above the countrywide average, as I've already said. They just stay longer. It's therefore the need, what we would like to get everything moving properly would be to get move on accommodation, get people in from temporary accommodation to secure accommodation. And that is phenomenally difficult in the, in the London context. Uh, rental affordability, as any of you who have tried looking in the private rented sector at the present time, no, has got very, very much worse. The rents are, on average, 20% higher this year than they were in 2019, which is a very big jump. And fewer than 1% of the advertised properties actually have rents which are below the local housing allowance. And for those of you who don't know what local housing allowance is, it's what you basically can, the state will pay uh, if you have no money. Uh, so the state will pay lower income households 
a grant to, to pay their rent, but only up to a given level. That given level was the bottom 30% of the local area, but it has been held down for four years now, I think. Uh, so there's a real issue there. Um, they're also, I'm afraid, increasing evidence that um, existing landlord providers find local authorities more difficult to cope with than just dealing with the market as such. So that we're, they're moving away from providing temporary accommodation. There have been lots and lots of people who have always provided temporary accommodation and many of them are now coming out of that system. Uh, and there's also competition from other government departments. So home office is a... <laughs> oh, I can't think of a polite way of saying what, uh, what it means for local authorities in this context. Um, and homelessness is set to rise uh, because of the, uh, the issues around you know, unemployment, higher costs of essentials, etc. And of course, the, the fact that the government is technically going to, public, to go through with the Rental Reform Act, uh, Reform Bill now, uh, means that uh, a lot of local, a lot of uh, landlords are thinking about uh, getting out. So what's good? Well, the only thing I can think of which is actually good is that, or positive, is that local authorities have been given support to buy, to bring in acquisitions, often of ex-right to buy property. So they are increasing the proportion of owned accommodation which can be used for temporary accommodation. Moving very quickly, because I suspect, A, I'm boring a man, and I'm over... <laughs> Um, we've talked about them, so I probably didn't move them at the right point. Uh, rough sleeping. Rough sleeping in legislative terms is treated totally differently. It's regarded as criminal offence. And when Blair, I think it was Blair, reinforced this in his thing, I said, I'm never going to vote for him again. It had actually been in place since 1824. Um, but we have had significant attempts by government uh, to uh, support uh, people who are rough sleeping. Uh, and of course, the uh, COVID helped this because we introduced everyone in, as did all the other major countries across the world, putting homeless people into uh, hotel accommodation, but usually with some support. The current strategy um, is to help everybody and initially we were thinking that we would get to no rough sleeping or at least very short term rough sleeping um, by, 19, by 2024. Uh, the latest one is 2027 and the government announced last week that they will not meet that. Um, where are we now therefore? Very, very quickly, a worsening uh, situation um, Though it's not so much for demand side, there aren't that many additional people coming forward as compared to last year or the year before. There is just a hell of a real problem on the supply side. Uh, and local authorities are facing enormous deficits uh, because they have to pay 
a significant proportion. And, and basically, they have to pay the residual. So ultimately, the local authority is uh, really stuck. And we will therefore turn to Jennifer to tell us about how hmm? local authorities are suffering. <coughs> Brilliant. Hi everyone, um, I'm Jennifer Winter and I work for Hackney Council. I've got about oh, 32 years experience within councils um, and I'm lucky to say that I haven't been in homelessness uh, for the whole of my career um, because it's a really difficult job. I have, however, got staff who have been working within the homelessness sector for over 30 years. And they are quite clear that what they are seeing and experiencing now is the worst that they have ever seen it for the residents that we are supporting that are destitute. I think I speak for all of us, and I think I speak probably for a lot of the civil servants that we deal with as well from the Department of Leveling Up Communities and Housing, regardless of whether you're statutory uh, services now or your third sector supporting people. I think it's clear to say that we all agree that this situation is not acceptable. It's really not. It wasn't 10 years ago and it's got much worse since then. Councils can't provide neat and quick answers. It's impossible. This is a deep, complex, systemic crisis that's going to need real solutions from a range of cabinet, uh, government departments. It's going to need a very real cross-government approach to solve. And what we've found is that piecemeal and short-term funding, which is what we've been given up until now, has actually not fixed the problem. And, and a lot of the times it makes things much worse. I've got some stats here for you. This is just based on councils in London, and these are averages. So we're seeing that London councils are going to have to find about £500 million worth of savings next year. It's £400 million this year, but it'll be £500 million next year. And that is just to balance the books. That's just to ensure that we don't have to serve a Section 114 notice, which is a notice which is telling people that if you don't sort your finances out very quickly, you're going to go bankrupt. And you will have seen over the years um, that over the last year, there are a lot more councils finding themselves in that position. Thurrock, Slough, Woking, Croydon, more recently, a couple of months ago, Birmingham, the one of the largest countries, uh, councils in the UK. So what we're seeing is the drivers of Dover overspend are social care, charges, so social care bill for adults and children, but then more increasingly so, the cost of temporary accommodation. In Hackney, we spend about 12.5 million per annum on temporary accommodation, and I think we could all agree that we could find better ways in which to use that money than housing people in what is so-called temporary accommodation, which is not stable. The funding I get from government covers less than 50% of that bill. So that bill has to be found through the powers in which councils raise their revenue. And that's council tax, parking, all, all the other ways we raise business rates. 
and that gap is getting harder and harder to fill for a lot of councils. Hackney Council is now receiving 45% less government funding than we did previously. So these are massive sums we're talking about. What we're finding is that the cost of delivering services is getting higher and higher. We're also finding that people that are presenting as homeless to us have got more and more and more complex needs, severe and multiple complex needs. And that means they need more support. We're seeing massive increases in those fleeing domestic abuse and coercive control, those with severe mental health conditions, and those also with substance abuse. But what we're seeing is a lot of people have experienced a lot of trauma to get to that place. And that is single people and families, parents alike. My staff are compassionate. We've had to find that our workforce within the homelessness sector has had to develop skills that we never thought they would need. Suicide prevention skills, trauma-based trauma practice, strengths-based workshops. You know, we're having to completely retrain all our staff so that they are equipped to support people adequately. And at the same time, because the job's getting harder and we've got less to give in the way of accommodation, we're finding that we have staff shortages across the board. It's a crap job, frankly. Nobody wants to do it. It's really hard because you don't have what people need. And the threat and the occurrence of moral injury for staff is growing. This is a bit of detail on Hackney. I'm going to whiz through these. So this gives you an indication of, of why we're in a housing crisis. In Hackney, we don't just have a housing crisis. We're at the epicentre of it. So we had the recent accolade of having the steepest house prices increase in the whole of the UK in the last 20 years. We've lost that crown now, thankfully. It's gone to Waltham Forest. But it still means that those residents, literally overnight, have found that they can't afford to continue to live in the place that they were born. <coughs> That's driven up the cost of renting. It's now crazy to rent in Hackney. And actually, I apologise because these slides are slightly out of date. The position is much worse than they show. So this shows for an average two-bed flat in Hackney, it's about £2,600 per calendar month, about a 14% increase. Christine said, and that is right, it has increased. Uh, these slides, I think, figures were from June, so it has increased since then. This shows how much you can get in housing benefit based on local housing allowance if you have no money, as Christine said. So the shortfall between what people need to find in rent and what their income is if they're in receipt of benefits is massive, it's untenable, it's not sustainable. People think we have lots of council housing, and in Hackney, yes, we do. We still have 22,000 units of council <coughs> housing because a long time ago, Hackney was a place nobody wanted to live. Now it's achingly hip, and a lot of people want to live there. So we do still have 22,000 units of council housing. We have about the same, again, of housing association housing. But those tenancies are secure tenants. The only way those properties become available for letting is if that tenant dies. So the turnover is very low. They're lifetime tenancies. We also have a lot of old housing stock. A lot of our housing stock was built post-war, so it needs regenerating, and a lot of it, quite frankly, is better off being demolished and rebuilt again, and giving people nice places to live. 
And then we're also still suffering from the government's right to buy policy, which means that we still lose council housing um, continuously, which means we've got less places to offer people. So every council will have a housing register, and that's what people call locally as the waiting list, and you can apply to go on your local waiting list, and each council will have a set criteria. Ours, you have to be in significant overcrowding or significant medical need to get on it. And at this moment in time, we've got 8,400 households on that housing register. All they're doing is waiting. This shows you how many properties you actually get to, live, uh, get to give to each, get to give out per year with regards to social housing. So if you look at these little uh, people figures, they represent 10 people. These are the amount of properties or the amount of residents that will successfully get property each year out of those that are waiting. And when you realise that half of what becomes available is a one bed on the fourth floor of an estate, it's actually quite difficult to make sure that you're able to give council housing to those who are most significantly in need. And by that, we're talking about mobility issues, uh, life-threatening illnesses, life-changing illnesses. This shows you, for people who are waiting for social housing, and bear in mind we have a lot of people in this country who can't afford any other type of housing other than social housing, because it's the cheapest form of housing. And this is the waiting times for them. As you can see, if you're over a five bed, you're going to be waiting 39 years. You wait in temporary accommodation, it's small, it's crowded, and as Christine said, it's quite often in the north of the country. If you come in to me today as homeless, I'll be looking at sending you to Leicester, because that's the only place that I can find a bed for you. Here we tell you how many people we've got in Hackney are homeless in temporary accommodation, mainly families, and this I think is the most shocking stat. Nearly 4,000 children in Hackney live in a homeless family in temporary accommodation. And that actually is enough now, not to fill eight primary schools, but nine. And I'll let that hang there because we are very shortly dealing with a whole generation of children who will have spent their whole lives in temporary accommodation and the issues that that will bring with it. If you haven't already, I suggest you check out a report by Shelter which gives you an insight into the lives of those families because it's really, really powerful. So I'm going to leave you there with what do we need? Obviously funding, changes to welfare reform, uh, funding from government to enable us to build more social housing but also to very quickly buy more. We don't mean piecemeal funding, we mean large investment. So I hope that gives you an indication to how difficult it is um, and what a complex topic it is that, that we're looking at. Thank you very much, and um, So I hope no one thinks I'm here to cheer you up. Because uh, <laughs> I'm really not. Um, <laughs> Homelessness is very bad, uh, <laughs> and uh, when I when I make that statement, 
I mean, it's very bad as an experience uh, for the people to whom it happens, but also comparatively speaking, I think you can see it's very, very bad uh, at the moment. Uh, and this debate uh, so far, this discussion has been framed around temporary accommodation. We've got a really good in-depth sense of a lot of the issues there. Um, but we're also talking about rough sleeping. So I thought um, it being my, like my kind of specialist subject, uh, I would talk about rough sleeping, um, although I'm very happy to chip in on any of the other stuff when people are asking questions. So I'm going to say a bit about what rough sleeping is, why the problem is getting worse, what the consequences are for people who are sleeping rough, and what I think would make a difference in policy terms. And also I'm going to edge, because, you know, I mean, you've got to go away here with some cheer, haven't you? Um, I will give you a few hints and tips about things that I think you can do as individuals um, to respond to the issues. So rough sleeping is the most visible form of homelessness, and it relates to people who are roofless, rather than necessarily people in hostels, bed and breakfast, overcrowding, or otherwise illegal accommodation. The official statistics for rough sleeping uh, occur through an annual benchmarking exercise, which normally takes place in the autumn every year. And local authorities will either literally go out and count people sleeping rough, or they'll do an estimate. There is a raging methodological debate about that that goes on in the sector. Um, and normally they find about 4,000 rough sleepers, which is generally about a tenth of the number of people in England that you might find rough sleeping in a year. So we're talking about 40,000 people. Uh, and that were the, those were the kind of numbers in 2022. So in London, uh, there is a wonderful shared database called CHAIN, which has been commissioned by the GLA for over 12 years, and it captures data on people found sleeping rough by a local authority commissioned outreach service in all of the London boroughs. And London had just over 10,000 rough sleepers in the last financial year, uh, which is about 25% of all of England's rough sleepers. Now, Westminster normally has between 20 and 25% of London's rough sleepers, that's sort of two, two and a half thousand a year. And the St. James's Ward in Westminster, where we all are right now, gets about 40% of Westminster's rough sleepers. So we truly are officially in the epicenter uh, of rough sleeping in England. You must be delighted. Um, about half of London's rough sleepers disclose a mental health condition. About a third disclose a mental health and addiction issue. 51% of London's rough sleepers are not originally from the UK, although most have a right to be here. 17% of rough sleepers are women, and that is a slowly growing trend. We aren't actually sure why at the moment. Chain defines rough sleepers in three categories. People who are new to the streets, which is about 65% uh, of the London figures, and then there's an interesting group of people who are living on the streets uh, for more than two years, which is about 20%. And then all the rest, the kind of remaining 15%, are people who are moving in and out of services, like temporary accommodation that, that we've been describing earlier. So um, in Westminster, there's a different pattern, uh, which is really interesting, because over half of Westminster's rough sleepers are returners, so people going in and out of services. Uh, and then there's about 300 people who've been living on the streets for more than a couple of years. 
So um, basically, Westminster's got more of the complicated people, uh, if I could just uh, put it very simply. Rough sleeping in London in uh, this year, uh, when 22.3 was up 21% on the previous year, uh, and in this quarter, in, in quarter one of this year, it was already up by another 20%. It's terrifying. Homelessness is rising uh, because we haven't been building enough affordable accommodation since the 1970s. So as a result, we've got too much demand for the housing supply we've got. And alongside this, as has already been described, we haven't adjusted housing benefit for those most reliant on state support uh, to be able to compete in this difficult market. Therefore, those people who are reliant on benefits uh, are at an even bigger disadvantage, and this is exacerbated by some landlords illegally discriminating against people on benefits. If you then layer in mental illness, addiction, criminal convictions, that sort of thing, uh, rough sleepers present as a poor risk to any type of landlord in an already very competitive market. Even if it were possible for everyone to be allocated decent, affordable housing, I think we would still have rough sleeping. And this is because, as has already been uh, described uh, really well so far, it's closely connected with complex trauma, usually in childhood. It's becoming really common to hear stories in the media about infants and children dying at the hands of abusive parents. A father and his partner have been found guilty of the killing of a six-year-old. The boy was tortured, eventually dying of a head injury in Solihull in June 2020 while in the care of his stepmother. On the day of Star's death, she was found lifeless and pale at the pair's flat in Keithley. A post-mortem examination would find evidence of catastrophic, unsurvivable injuries. Their likely cause, punching, kicking or stamping. This act of violence was not a one-off. It's really shocking. Uh, in 22-3, there were 456 serious incidents involving children reported by local authorities to the Child Safeguarding Practice Review Panel. Of these, 201 involved the death of a child. What kind of life would these children have had if they'd survived into adulthood? Well, quite a lot of them are sleeping rough on the streets of London with undiagnosed, untreated and severe mental health problems. They're self-medicating with street drugs and alcohol. There is a link between struggling public services, GPs, A&E, police, and the rise in rough sleeping. When our services haven't had the resources or the bandwidth to pick up on those incredibly serious situations of abuse, the consequence is that the victims have absolutely no confidence in those services. Therefore, people who are on the streets are not just ruthless, they are trustless and deeply suspicious of the state. And that is what we mean by complex trauma. A child, a, a client we're working with at the moment was brought up in a violent, physically and emotionally abusive home. The client's sibling died as a result of parental violence. This client is now 41. When they turned 40, they concluded that their life of heroin addiction and rough sleeping really needed to stop. We built up a relationship with them over time, got them on a methadone prescription, linked them in with a clinical psychologist, the first time they had ever had contact with a mental health professional. And the person is now in temporary accommodation and doing much, much better. 
Life expectancy for rough sleepers is 47 for men and 43 for women. The impact this small but highly vulnerable group has on A&E, the criminal justice system, mental health and addiction support, housing, benefits is immense. Um, and I'd also like to highlight the human cost, the life of suffering and wasted potential for the people who are sleeping rough. And we as a society are struggling with the consequences of the rise in homelessness. Limited resources, as we've heard so well illustrated, both statutory and voluntary services, have systems which are geared towards managing a demand that massively outstrips the supply of both housing and support. If you're homeless, you will usually spend time in a number of different temporary accommodation uh, housing options, a couple of hostels, you might move into a supported flat in the medium term, and then maybe move into a longer term tenancy. Now, I moved house in 2020, just before the pandemic, and there's a reason why moving house is identified as one of the three most stressful things that people experience alongside divorce and the loss of a close relative or friend. Our homelessness response system involves people with demonstrable poor mental health, uh, starting, having to sort of restart and move, more than, move several times before resettling permanently. And we are making an absolute ordeal out of someone's crisis in the response system. So charities, faith groups and families can't be the backstop picking up the slack, uh, but that is often the case at the moment. Um, and, it's, and our response is just not adequate to meet the needs that we're presented with. And it's not the fault of local authorities. You've heard from Jennifer very clearly what they are doing. It's also not the fault of the police, the health and the social services. It is a reflection of long-term policy decisions in housing and public services over a long period of time. It's taken us a really long time to get into this situation. It's going to take us a long time to get out of it. We're coming up to Christmas, which is the time of year when most homelessness charities do amazingly well with their fundraising. Think a bit about um, the images that are presented. Uh, you'd be forgiven for thinking that giving a rough sleeper a Christmas dinner and a party hat and maybe help to get a job will inexplicably lead to them going into a new home come January. And I really need to dispel the myth that the response to homelessness by charities should involve distributing food and sleeping bags or running night shelters. Homelessness causes most of us to feel very uncomfortable and the immediate humanitarian responses are practical and they're tangible and they are more easily within our gift. However, they do not deal with the underlying causes of somebody's homelessness. There were about 40,000 people estimated to be sleeping rough as I sort of started uh, my, my, uh, my talk and about two thirds of them will actually get help very quickly to resolve their situation. The 13,500 or so who are left make up less than 0.3% of the population. The support system doesn't work for them. They're living on the streets, they're returning back to the streets after periods in service provision. And as time goes on, I find it easier to boil down very quickly the core solutions in three points. Number one, more affordable accommodation, who knew? Uh, with sufficient housing benefit and long-term support from a trusted individual or service provider. Number two, 
access to more flexible, high-quality treatment services for mental ill health and addiction. And then number three, particularly in London, because the, the proportion of people sleeping rough uh, who are not originally from the UK is so high, remove the known recourse to public funds restriction for people with unclear immigration status so they can get the support they need. And if rough sleeping causes you discomfort personally, and I'm guessing that you wouldn't be here if you didn't think about it and worry about it, um, here are some suggestions. Get yourself really well informed about rough sleeping. It is brilliant that you are here and hearing from us. There's a lot written about rough sleeping, and alongside academic research, read books. I recommend Stuart, A Life Backwards, and Poverty Safari. Volunteer in an organisation that's already doing something about homelessness in the area where you live. Do not try and start up something new. <laughs> Show that you care publicly. Join the social media feeds of the homeless organisations that have been mentioned this evening already. You, know, you, you can join ours if you like. Uh, the Connection, Crisis, Shelter, Homeless Links and Mungos. The policy asks are there. Um, share them. Share them in your networks. Look out for the London Charter to end rough sleeping, which will be launched later in November. Sign up, get your organisation, your employer, your bank, your local author, anyone. Get them to sign up. We are better together. And finally, um, people sleeping rough are people. They're somebody's uncle or their brother or their daughter. Acknowledge people if they ask you for money even if you don't want to give them anything. It means that they know you've seen them and that you care. Thank you. From Pam's presentation, I'll focus in more depth on the lived experience of homeless people and specifically rough sleepers. I will focus on the reality of being roofless and I will explore what it is like to be without a home, how it feels and what it means for one's identity, what the needs of homeless people are and how various processes of marginalization can impact one's ability to escape homelessness. So it is a bit depressing. I will also, I hope that through my presentation, I will be able to bring the perspective or voice of homeless people into our discussion. And in doing so, I'll draw on the existing literature on the topic, as well as primary, in-depth, uh, primarily ethnographic research with homeless people. So firstly, before we speak about homelessness, let's think about the idea of home. Research suggests that there are four key markers or functions, if you like, of a home. So it provides a site of constancy in the social and material environment. It is a spatial context in which the day-to-day -day routines of human existence are performed. It is a site where people feel most in control of their lives because they feel free from the surveillance that is part of the contemporary world. And it is also a secure base 
around which identities are constructed. Let's now move our attention to being deprived of a home and how it shapes one's experience of sleep. Sleep is not only what differentiates homeless people from those who have a house and can sleep in secure conditions, but most crucially, it is also an essential part of, part of human experience for our biological and emotional well-being and therefore a basic human right. In my interactions with homeless people, I have often considered whether someone unable to restore oneself through a good quality sleep can find the required motivation to leave homelessness. The key spaces available to homeless people for sleep are institutional <coughs> accommodation spaces such as hostels and shelters, and then the public space. Hostels and shelters constitute temporary spaces of sleep that cannot provide the residents with a sense of safety and privacy. In contrast, these spaces require homeless people to conform to rules, routines, and timetables that can lead to patterns of institutionalization. Therefore, hostels and shelters may provide warmth, water, food, and access to support services, but when inadequately resourced, they can be experienced as spaces of confinement, powerlessness, and insufficient levels of safety. In the public space, such as at entrances to churches, pavements, or under buildings, homeless people are only able to engage in what has been described as half-sleep. In describing this unenjoyable and disrupted experience of sleep, some rough sleepers mention that during the night, only one of the eyes is sleeping and the other one must remain wide open. Or that their eyes on their face must have appeared closed but were fully alert <coughs> behind closed eyelids. Interwoven with an ever-present risk of victimization and threat, this experience of disturbed sleep increases a generalized sense of anxiety, fear and panic amongst homeless people, which consequently can cause serious health problems and impaired social functioning. Indeed, one rough sleeper I spoke to said that a person's good quality of sleep constitutes half of, this very, of his very being and rhetorically asked, how can you be sane without sleep? These experiences point to a crucial dimension of homelessness, namely being without a boat, without a space over which one has territorial <coughs> control and therefore a space to store belongings and fulfill other basic needs and safety and access clean lavatories and showers. This has a detrimental impact on how one becomes homeless, how their identity as homeless becomes crystallized and how then escaping this predicament becomes even more unattainable. Unable to access clean toilets, homeless people and specifically women highlighted feeling utterly humiliated when they had to relieve themselves in the public space. This can result in a violation of self-respect, self-dignity, and the dehumanization of self-perception. Not being able to store one's personal belongings, which may also include items of sentimental value, such as photographs of the family members, may mean that starting work may be impossible as one would risk storing their belongings in an unsafe location 
and having them stolen. Being stuck in one spot also means that homeless people cannot easily maintain relationships with others, and therefore they experience extreme feelings of loneliness, something further accentuated by the cutting of ties with family and friends. <coughs> For some, this has been described as a strategy which allows them not to reveal their predicament as it constitutes a source of shame and embarrassment and consequently compromises the self-dignity, self or inner worth and how they were perceived and treated by themselves and others. Gradually what becomes evident is that homeless people are stripped off the identity they had prior to becoming homeless. Their connections with family and friends are interrupted. The daily lives become underpinned by constant struggle to survive, attend homelessness services and soup kitchens. They disconnect from, various, from previous interests and hobbies. And slowly they internalize the new ident identity of the homeless person. This process was described by one of the, my participants who reflected on the time he was sleeping rough. When you are on the street, you do nothing but be on the street. You cannot be who you were. You cannot and you don't even want to become who you were. Because you just cannot do the same things. Especially during the time I was sleeping rough, I was not myself. I was lost. I was in another dimension. It was not me, but someone else. This new self, this other self, is simply inter intertwined with emotional ramifications of how it feels to be homeless and what the process of becoming homeless looks like. This was shaped and crystallized by incidents of victimization in the form of insulting verbal and sometimes physical attacks, or the exact opposite, namely becoming invisible, <coughs> being not seen or recognized by passers-by. Either incidents of victimization or incidents contributing to feeling invisible instill a sense of worthlessness, degradation, stigma, and marginalization among homeless people. Eventually, homeless people experience feelings of dehumanization. For example, one homeless person explained that he felt disgusting and absolute nothing, and that every time he closed his eyes before trying to sleep, he just had the phrase, you are nothing, stuck in his mind. Whereas many others did not perceive themselves to be of the same worth as people who were housed. Seeing no positive prospects of escaping homelessness, extreme and continuous feelings of fear, solitude, loneliness and rejection can lead to homeless people experiencing what has been described in the sociological literature as ontological insecurity. Namely, a deep unconscious feeling of threat and danger against one's core existence, a generalized and uncontrollable experience of anxiety, panic and hopelessness, and a fragmented experience of self. To cope with this unbearable situation, homeless people may turn to alcohol or substance misuse. And here, it is important to view these not in a stigmatizing way, but within the context of the wider experience. 
Through this lens, alcohol and drug use must be seen as coping mechanisms, forms of self-medication if you like, to manage these extreme feelings of shame, guilt, powerlessness and worthlessness in combination with an ever-present ever exposure to threat and therefore <coughs> physical and emotional insecurity. So what do homeless people want? As everyone else, homeless people need a non-institutional space, be it small or large, as a basis for regaining a sense of emotional, physiological, territorial and physical safety. What matters here is that, these spa that the spaces offered to them are not temporary or spaces that treat homeless people as mere bodies that have to comply with various regulations as a condition for them to maintain a place in overcrowded and adverse conditions. In other words, they need what I have called home care, a type of care from systems of support that recognizes and responds to their need for a space they can call home. It is only in this way that the sense of dehumanization and worthlessness instilled in homeless people through the advanced form of marginalization underpinning the condition of homelessness can be alleviated. It is only through offering them a sense of safety and a context that removes feelings of worthlessness and powerlessness that they can become motivated to work with services, escape homelessness and rebuild their lives. Thank you. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories, or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. Thanks so much, Maria. Okay, so we've now gone through all of our speakers. Super interesting, lots of really different perspectives. Um, and it's open for questions, I think. So we're going we'll to start with the audience, and then we'll also... Any, any questions coming through online? There are questions coming up through online, so we'll, we'll come to that too. Uh, we'll take a couple of questions at a time. And we have microphones? The microphones on each side. So I'm going to start with a gentleman in the purple, and then I think there was a hand just behind in the baseball cap, and then we'll come over to this side after. Uh, thank you. Um, I found it very moving and almost in tears at times tonight listening to you. Uh, I want to congratulate you on all you're doing. Um, I want to ask you about refugees. Um, I come from Wimbledon, Chris Larkman's my name, and um, I lead with our local church a resettlement team, and we've resettled a Syrian family who arrived 18 months ago. Um, and you can imagine what I'm going to say. It, that we support them for two years, and the two years will come up, will end in June, and we've no accommodation. And just listening and being aware of what you were saying tonight, I found quite frightening. I mean, this country hasn't been hugely generous, as we know, in, in welcoming refugees. Um, but the, those we've welcomed Many of them, like our family, we fear are going to find themselves in an incredibly tough situation, far more, far tougher than we'd first welcomed them. So I wondered if you had any comments on the issue of refugees, please. Great. We'll come to that. We'll take the question from uh, the gentleman in the baseball cap, and then we'll, we'll come to the panel.
thank you for your talk. Um, I'm surprised that a talk on such a serious subject that we've not heard how poverty begins in the first place. Where is it that, um, that someone finds himself or a country finds can itself? You, can you speak so into the microphone? How is it that we don't, you haven't brought up on the subject of where poverty comes from in the first place and dealing with um, the government and institutional um, malaise which profits from uh, homelessness, which is large, large landlords who can keep putting up their prices because there's not enough housing stock. Uh, I think if, to be taken seriously, uh, we do need to look at where this problem begins with the first place. And of course, these large landlords are also members of parliament, dominate that sphere. So I think in our um, discourse, that this must be presented, otherwise we're just describing a problem and not really solving it. Because homelessness is great news for landlords and it's also great news for charities who get to rise and uh, be sanctimonious about trying to deal with the problem without actually ever focusing on the big issues. So I hope in further talks on this that you uh, introduce more of a diverse thought Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm sure we've got some great thoughts on landlords. Let's start with the refugee and, and move on. Because it's uh, um, uh, Pam, do you look at you talked about no recourse to public funds, and I'm guessing a lot of people are asylum seekers and, and refugees who uh, don't have a conversation. Do I speak into into here? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, I mean, if 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 um, you've got refugee status, there is the assumption that it's all good. Um, because if people have got refugee status, then their rights and entitlements to provision significantly increase. Um, I share your concern about what might happen with that family when your two years are up. Um, it's really difficult. I mean, they, they will be affected by all the same housing issues that we've described uh, are faced by people who are experiencing homelessness. And I wish I could offer a cheery solution uh, to you, but I'm afraid I can't. But I just recognise the issue. Um, I, I suppose what I would also just throw in is it's quite interesting the Homes for Ukraine scheme <laughs> um, and some of the differences that the government have, uh, uh, some of the different choices they've made around policy on that issue. And, and those asylum seekers that um, aren't in uh, homes like yourself that have the support around them, often when they do get refugee status, they then have, I don't know, is it two weeks or 28 days? Very little, 28, very little time to sort themselves out and, and claim benefits and get into school and find combination. So it's a, a key source of destitution for migrants, I think. Um, anything else on the refugees? Uh, Chris, do you want to deal with the landlord one? Because obviously, basically the gentleman was talking about profiteering from landlords and how that's part of this and that how that's baked into the system and perhaps uh, a, a part of the solution is really to remove that aspect of, uh, of this at, at its source. Um, I think it's a very difficult one, like every other question will be. Um, the vast majority of landlords are not uh, making vast amounts of money uh, and they are being reasonably good. And 65, 70% of landlords do not put the rent up um, while the same tenancies is there over the country as a whole. But where we're talking 
quite differently is, is there a, is a subset of extremely bad landlords um, who know how to work the system. And they're often not doing anything which is technically illegal. So I think there is an issue about uh, looking at uh, how we can better uh, support the tenants in those situations. But and I'm afraid that usually, or often, it's poverty and poverty yep. rather than vast amounts of money being made. Yep. And the gentleman uh, clarifies a bit, large landlords acknowledge that. But we'll move on to, there were some hands over here. Uh, so we'll take the lady in the front in the white top and then the lady behind in the orange jumper. Thank you, thank you for your um, really interesting presentations. I'm from uh, New Horizon Youth Centre, um, one of only, I think there are only two day centres for young people experiencing homelessness in the whole country, one of them in London and one of them in Brighton. Um, and we're, sorry to give everyone another statistic, but more than 129,000 young people last year were present, presented to their councils as experiencing homelessness. We know that might only be 50%. Um, of the actual problem for young people. But are there any specific solutions that the panel would like to see for young people to try and reduce that number in the coming years? Thank you. Great, thank you. And then uh, two rows behind. Um, shorter question. I'm just interested in how we might promote house building in the UK and if this kind of encouragement or promotion of rent controls is in conflict with our interest in increasing house building in the country. In conflict with? In conflict, conflict with, with, yeah. Okay. And do you want to go next week, Martin? Yeah. Uh, just thank you guys so much. Um, this was beautiful to hear and, and also harrowing to hear. Um, I, I used to do a lot of homelessness work in New York City. Um, there, there was an interesting model because obviously I think housing first is what we all see as what we need, right? But in a world where that's extraordinarily difficult to get through from a political perspective, we, we used to do a lot of work in um, transitional housing and in homeless shelters, um, just human interaction work, spending time asking people what supplies they need that they did not have, um, and also just frankly just spending like time, just, just getting to know people. Um, and one of the things that came about in that work is what would it look like for TA to be a lot better? Like in a world where you can't get, ideally that's what we need, right? But, but what does it look like for different organizations to support a more human experience in temporary accommodation? And I'm very curious. Fantastic. Well, we've got another round of questions coming, but let's, uh, who wants to take the question about young people? What more can be done for young people who are homeless? I do think that we do have an issue um, in the context of what do we, you know, we've got legal requirements around under 18s and over 18s, and those are not necessarily what reflects the reality of what's going on in this context. And uh, it, is, it is a massive issue. It's also the case that as we, when, in the old days when we had a general household survey, um, most young people technically slept rough now and again. Uh, and so you've got to distinguish in, in anything which you say or do about the ones who are, are you know, 
are at risk as opposed to the ones who are having fun in the most extreme situation. Yeah. But there I mean, are low legal frameworks and, and we need to, I don't know whether they're ideal by any means. Can I come in on that? Yeah, Jennifer then, Maria. Um, I mean, in Hackney, uh, under 25s is our fastest growing cohort of people who are presenting as homeless. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing that predominantly because uh, they're being evicted from family and friends yeah. due to conflict. We've got huge amounts of overcrowding in the capital, and of course that increases stress and pressure at home and familial conflict. So it's hardly surprising <coughs> that we're seeing that increase. Um, it, it's, it's just really difficult. They're yet another hugely important group of people who have a very distinct set of needs that we have to provide for. Um, in Hackney, we've just put in a bid to government to set up our first housing first scheme specifically for uh, under 25s with 10 units of social housing accommodation. We've yet to hear if we've been successful with that. Government are trying to beat us down on the price because apparently we're far too expensive, but hey, we should find Do out in the next few weeks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is the case, of course, that. Uh, and, I, and it's only really coming out of the statistics now, that you know, people have been overcrowded throughout COVID. They've just had enough. And the kids are now 21 instead of being 17 or whatever. Mm. And the number of, you know, last child or one of the children being kicked out is phenomenal. Mm. Mm. Um, do you want to add more, Maria? specifically for young people. Yeah, I mean, removing that, that um, you know, the... <laughs> the housing benefit restriction around people being yeah. under 35 needing to have a shared room rate would probably make a bit of a difference, mm. uh, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose what, what what's interesting about this is, is that a lot of this is still about basically managing not enough houses. Mm. Um, we just haven't got enough houses. Um, and if we had more houses, there'd be more places for people to live and it would be easier to delineate different housing responses for different groups of people. On a separate but slightly related, uh, quite related um, point, I think there's also this huge problem around homelessness, uh, family and children, which I, I know Jennifer you touched upon. And uh, there's research that suggests um, how significant the developmental problems for children uh, when it comes to them attending school regularly, being able to um, attend school in clean clothing, um, and you can only imagine how then, if we have a generation with this problem, then what this would do when these people become young, um, and how this problem is going to definitely grow. Great. Jennifer, I'm going to come to you on this question around, the, I mean, the quality of temporary accommodation, and I'm going to slightly frame it, frame it the way the gentleman framed it, but also ask, when, when people are moved to places like Leicester, are you able to do anything to support their experience of that move and their integration when they get there? You won't be surprised to know it's really hard. Um, I mean, and if you can... And expensive. You, if you can picture yourself pitching up at council offices in complete despair with three children, only to be told that the closest place we can find you to put you is Leicester and we need you can't look at it beforehand um, and you need to say whether you're going to take it now or not because there's another family sitting over there mm -hmm. 
who are behind you, who if you don't take it, will take it. That's very much the experience. Um, what we do find is that families that are homeless can quite often find maybe a sister or a family member or a friend where they could potentially stay one more night on the floor and they would rather do that and us keep looking to see if we can find somewhere closer. So in practice that's what tends to happen. We are as supportive as we possibly can be, uh, we do try and do things like video viewings. We try and do. We pay for people's travel costs to get them to and from temporary accommodation. We make sure that there are school places available locally. That the local authority has school places. We give them details around the GPs and how they can link them into services. And of course, <coughs> statutorily, we need to notify that local council that we are placing somebody who is homeless in their borough for them to make a decision on what they do. There are lots of rules and regulations about who you can place away from their home borough. And obviously our aim is not to place anybody that we don't think will be able to cope outside of their home borough. So with our families, a lot of our families in Hackney are large families. A lot of them also have caring responsibilities for extended families who might live in a different home, thereby saving the state on adult social care funding. Um, you know, it's, it's, it affects so many different areas of people's lives. They might have mobility and disability <coughs> issues as well. Um, so, you know, you layer on all those factors and all those possible variables, and it's really hard to find anywhere, even up north. Yeah. But, you know, better TA, I'm really pleased. We're doing a piece of research together with Trust for London on better temporary accommodation in London and I'm, I'm really proud to be able to say that in my opinion I think Hackney has delivered some of the, <coughs> the best temporary accommodation that is available in London. We've spent millions investing in our own portfolio of stock to enable us to keep our homeless <coughs> families in borough. Um, whilst they're in hostels the hostels look like studio flats you wouldn't know they're hostels from the outside they look like a block of apartments and it enables us to keep people close it enables us to keep children safe <coughs> and close and in school and with their peer groups and we also work really really closely with our community and voluntary sector to make sure that that support network wraps around those families chris uh, you want to say something just, briefly, just very very quickly I think one of the, uh, I mean, I'm sure that Hackney is brilliant and there's never any problem, but I have seen too many uh, expensive flats in expensive parts of West London where it would sell for two million, but it is unusable by the people from TA because they haven't thought about what they need, their security in a quite different way from somebody who's in charge of where they're living, etc. And I find this horrifying, the amount of you know, poor quality, not because the property is bad, but because of the way that it's not linked to the people in any real sense. There are no official uh, planning standards for temporary accommodation, so there's no specifics there. 
Um, there are for social housing, but there's not for temporary yeah, accommodation. Yeah. Uh, later on next month, Morris and Co, who are an architect's practice in Hackney, yeah, um, have been doing a piece of research and will be releasing a report around recommendations for government about what they think temporary accommodation standards around planning is needed. So look out for that. Great. I will come to the online questions in a second and then back into the room. We've got about... 12 minutes or so. I will definitely come back. But I, I just very quickly, Christine, you're a, you're a housing economist. I think that's right, isn't it? Yeah. The, the, link between, the link between building houses and rent controls. Uh, can you give a snappy answer to, to that? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I, there is no doubt that traditional rent controls reduce the amount of available stock over a period of time. They don't do it necessarily immediately, and they, so the rent controls can benefit for the first two or three years, or maybe even longer. But there is no doubt, and we can see this from places like Berlin, which put in a very hefty rent control. It just went, building just went down. And uh, it, we've got examples of that from 1890 through to now. But there are ways in which we could do much better for rent stabilisation than we're doing at the present time. Yeah, fantastic. Are we going to take, take, a, take two questions from online, maybe? Okay. Hello. Um, there's a lot of praise coming in online, a lot of people saying thank you for what's been a really interesting um, and informative panel. Um, the two questions I think I'm going to go for, so um, there's one from somebody asking on behalf of a friend. Um, they've said that they're an academic on a zero hours contract and they've found that um, when they've tried to access uh, renting through the private rental sector, um, they've been consistently denied because they're on zero hours. And so they were wondering, and I thought I'd particularly ask Dr. Winter and Pam, whether they had any advice for what this person should do. Um, the other question um, that I thought was very interesting uh, with the time that we have is for the whole panel. Um, many people remark the pandemic as evidence of our capacity to end rough sleeping. Is this a myth or are there lessons to be learned from the response from the sector? You know, was this a, uh, an exceptional situation or is this something we could genuinely replicate and make permanent? Fantastic. Anyone want to provide some advice to the individual? Well, without wishing to sound like I'm just kind of, you know, reneging any responsibility, I think that that person could phone up the shelter London housing advice line and get some really good quality housing advice. I mean, they can, they can definitely claim universal credit um, if they're not already, um, and they can do that through the gov.uk website. Um, it is illegal for landlords to say they won't rent to you if you're in receipt of benefits. However, we know that in practice, it's still happening. Um, and the trouble is, in areas of huge competition for privately rented homes, we see properties going, disappearing, within the hour uh, because competition is so fierce and there is always someone who has more available funds than you to rent that property. So I think make sure they're claiming all the benefits they can possibly claim um, and, and contact shelter, as Pam said. Great. And, and on the pandemic, I think there was a lot of hope that the Tory government would actually see ending rough sleeping as a, a thing that they would take forward following the pandemic, but I, I guess that's not, that's not materialising now. Uh, well, technically, they have put money, more money in, yeah. and if you look at the money per per head of head of rough sleeping population versus head of TA population, uh, they've been, by historic standards, generous. 
but I'm terribly afraid that rough sleeping isn't solved simply by money. Yeah. Mm. Short-term so, funding as well. It's all very short-term, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we ran uh, hotels uh, under the Everyone Inn um, yeah. uh, uh, scheme, I suppose we call it, uh, in, the first, in the first wave of the pandemic, and the various other hotel initiatives continued until about March 2022. Um, <coughs> Interestingly, interestingly, the government strategy to halve rough sleeping by 2022 was achieved in London because people were in hotels uh, for a lot of the time. Brilliant. Um, and I can offer rays of hope uh, in that a lot of people that we knew really well did very well in hotels because the quality of their Absolutely. sleep was much better because they were in single rooms. They had much more of a sense of safety and dignity. They were getting three meals a day. So, so from a sort of harm minimisation point of view, it was much better. Um, we were able to chuck an awful lot more joined-up service provision at people because they were much more likely to be in. Um, so there were lots of real benefits to it. Um, but what then happened is as people started moving out of the hotels and into the homeless <coughs> support system, we're then getting the return factor. Um, again, because it's a support system that just simply does not work for mm -hmm. lots of, of people. Um, and so the support system needs to change. So things like Housing First, it's not like the cure-all that's going to fit everybody, but Housing First is an effective response for a lot of people who sleep rough. Um, and there are all sorts of other things that we can do as well, but the money isn't there and the housing stock isn't there. Mm. Fantastic. Any more questions? Oh, well, oh, there are some more. So I'm going to take um, the gentleman in the grey jumper, sorry, behind, and I'm going to go to the gentleman there in the blue. Oh my God, I think that's right. And we'll see where we land, and then we'll come over there. Uh, good evening. Uh, my question is uh, specifically for Hackney. You talked about Hackney. How closely do you work with the families uh, once they are placed into private accommodation? And what happens if the landlord says, uh, I can no longer uh, continue uh, being with this family? Uh, do you advise the landlord or do you wait for them to go to court in order to, uh, to accept the tenants? So we, we offer, for people that we place in temporary, com in uh, privately rented accommodation, we provide tenancy sustainment, which is very much a wraparound um, support package. And that, that involves liaising with landlords, dealing with arrears, uh, making sure people are getting all the money they're entitled to, dealing with any neighbour disputes, etc., etc. For people who approach us that are being threatened with homelessness, we liaise with their landlords with their permission. Uh, we will, we do have funds at our disposal, but these are rapidly shrinking funds where we can help pay off arrears for people to prevent their tenancy failing. So if they've had a short-term issue that's caused them to get into arrears, which has then caused the landlord to issue a Section 21 notice to try and gain possession of the property, we can step in and try and prevent that tenancy failing um, and make sure that those, those families get back on track. So we've got a good track record at doing that. The numbers are just overwhelming. Hi, um, my name is Augustin, I'm from Canada, uh, I'm an urbanization development major, and I had a question, is, is how is it that not enough housing has been made? In one of my last classes, uh, we've talked a lot about density, have there been any big measures to increase density in certain boroughs of London, for example? 
do you have the phrase NIMBY in there? Uh, <laughs> I think that might be the answer. Uh, and then, um, and then, then the, the last one from the gentleman at the right and the back there with his hand up. Does anyone else have an answer to why, why aren't there so many houses being built? I, th- no, I'm looking at you when I say I think there's a, really, there's a really interesting book called Municipal Dreams, I believe, which addresses a lot of this issue. I think until the late 1970s, there was a lot of enthusiasm about building uh, a council housing. Um, and then I, I, think so, I think something quite bad happened with the economy in about 1977 involving the IMF, and that stuff all kind of stopped. Uh, and so, um, and then there was a, a massive shift in the um, policy approach to house building, uh, which means that uh, you know we moved into a situation of right to buy and uh, uh, local authorities shifting their housing stock into. Uh, housing associations and, and housing associations as a sort of thing starting to become massive and that's all lovely um, and lots of people live in really great housing association tenancies but there aren't enough of them and there hasn't been <coughs> enough of a policy driver um, from government to, to push that agenda um, and planning. But that, that is most of what you're talking about totally correctly is about affordable housing and yeah. subsidised housing why we're not building housing for the market is very significantly about the attitudes of people with the NIMBY approach to life. Or indeed, banana is much more to the point. Build absolutely nothing, anywhere near anything. So, and, and the last point from the yes, discussion. Uh, maybe one comment and one question. I believe Dr. Uh, Maria mentioned it. It's my seven weeks in the city, uh, to be honest. And like um, observing, it's a bit frightening how normalized and how people operate around homelessness. It's, 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 it's really uh, frightening to see. Um, and my second, uh, my question is, mm, many mentioned like initiative and, and charity and policy. I want to ask like how can for just the idea, the simple idea of just give them cash, of course acknowledging there is housing demand, acknowledging the mental health cannot be solved, but yeah, universal basic income can provide this platform not only to give them, uh, 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 humanizing them and give them dignity, but also it feels like it's also a platform when social movement can unite to find poverty, malnutrition, dependency on food banks, uh, domestic violence and, and certain extent and I feel yeah could what's what the panel think about UBI uh, as, a, as, a, as a solution maybe or a starting of a solution thank you thank, thanks so much and we'll just take the take the UBI anyone want to come on on UBI every time every time I come to LSE someone asks a question about UBI <laughs> uh, uh, by the way but, uh, any, any sort of points on cash transfers <laughs> Pamela's going to come in then I, can't well, I think you should ask I don't, yeah, I don't have very much this is like the worst answer ever. Um, some people I know and respect really like it <laughs> uh, a lot. I don't actually know what the impact would be on uh, people's ability to pay rent because it doesn't resolve the issue of there not being enough houses uh, because you're still basically playing around with demand massively outstripping supply, which is the fundamental And to be issue. honest, it usually ends up with it being less well used. Yeah. And, and as a country, we are many, many decades from the public accepting any kind of um, changes to welfare as mm. radical as, as that, I'm afraid, is, is, is where I sit on this. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
It, 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 absolutely. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Nancy for Thank radical thinking and maybe some wrap up. I was going to just wrap up. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's, that's fine. Take, 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 take that Please one. No. Yes, yeah. um, and I'm going to just sit here while yes, I do it. Um, first, I think we should all thank our speakers and the people who have come to talk to us this evening. You guys have been Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.